Good morning. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 17. We are continuing this morning in our study of the book of Leviticus. Um, I have a question for us to consider this morning uh, before even we read uh, the texts in front of us. What kind of society do you want to live in? What kind of country, kind of nation do you want to live in? It is fascinating when you consider that in the midst of our differences as people with different cultures, different upbringings, the general answer that is found when people are, are asked this question is largely the same. What, what social studies show is that while people might frame the answer differently, the core and fundamental of what they want in a society is by and large the same. Listen to this quote by ethics professor Scott Ray of the Impact Institute. He says this very succinctly. Most people would not want to live in a society in which morality was unimportant in which conceptions of right and wrong carried little weight. Most people would not want to live in such a society. Now, this man is talking purely from a social study perspective, but he is right. In general, we all want to live in a righteous place. The only problem with our search for a society where morality is important is the fact that we remove the source of morality in the con- from the conversation. That's our problem. You see, when you think about morality, that is, when you think about right and wrong, don't think about, don't think about it as just growing from a tree. It doesn't just come from nowhere. The source of true morality is God. The source of true morality is the character of God. The strongest piece of evidence for the existence of God is that people have a sense of morality, even though they have no ability to carry it out. They know that this is right and this is wrong. The testimonies speak against them. They know that for a society to thrive, when you take our own actions and then you apply them to a society, they know that for a society to thrive, justice must reign, the vulnerable must be cared for, Authorities matter and hospitality must be given. But what they leave out in their search is, God, is this particular piece of a healthy society. God must be honored. See, you remove God and then we let's try and find a way to live and exist with all these other things, but just move God aside. And it's a problem in the way that they think. In this section of Leviticus that we're in, I say to you that we find what it is that we want and need in a society. In these sections, this is chapter 17 to 20, God enjoins the Israelites to look to Him alone. And when they consider how they are to live with each other in light of looking to God alone, He describes for them a way to live which fits the description of nothing less than a utopia. If the Israelites truly lived in this way, they would have lived in the most paradise way that humans can possibly dream to live in, 
in the midst of a world that has sin. But much more than what is described for us in chapter 17 to 20 is that these are signs of God's nearness. The closer God, who is the source of morality, is to a people, the more people act this way. The closer God is near to a person and affects a person, the more a person lives this way. See, this, these laws are not arbitrary. They reflect the character of God. They reflect what God is like. In looking at these laws and studying them in detail, we don't just learn how, how we are to live and what a good society looks like, but we learn much more. We learn what God is like. We learn what the true maker of the world and the one who designed everything, what is his character like? That is what these laws show us. And there are a number of uh, aspects to the character of God as revealed here in these passages. And there are a number of aspects, particularly to this utopia, to this utopia rather. We have already seen last week the first two things. That number one, God must be worshipped and God must be worshipped alone. And number two, we saw last week that evil practices with regard to sexuality must be avoided at all costs by the people of God. And we saw what that shows us about the character of God. And today we'll hear God command the Israelites to hold sacred the need for atonement, to honor authorities to care for the poor, and to love justice. That's what we have in front of us today. To hold sacred the need for atonement, to honor authorities, to care for the poor, and to love justice. Come with me for the first of these headings to Leviticus 17 and verse 10. Then They must hold sacred the need for atonement. Verse 10. If there is anyone from the house of Israel or from the alien who is dwelling in their midst who eats any blood, then I will set my face against the person who eats the blood, and I'll cut him off from among his people. Indeed, the flesh's life is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, because it is the blood with the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the Israelites, None of you may eat blood, nor may the alien who is dwelling in your midst eat blood. And if there is anyone from among the Israelites or from the alien who is dwelling in their midst who hunts wild game, uh, wild, wild game animal or a bird that may be eaten, then he shall pour out its blood and he shall cover it with soil. Indeed, the life of all flesh, its blood, is in its life. So I said to the Israelites, you may not eat the blood of any flesh Because the life of all flesh is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. If there is any person who eats a dead body or a mangled carcass, whether among the native or among the alien, then he shall wash his garments and he shall wash himself with water, and he shall be unclean until the evening, and he shall be clean. But if he does not wash his garments and he does not wash his body, then he shall bear his Guilt. This is God's word. In this instruction, we see the Lord making a blanket statement regarding blood. It is not to be drunk or eaten by anyone among the people of God. 
And the reason that is given is repeated multiple times and is very clear. The life, that is the life of the animal, is in the blood. So if you're an Israelite and you're cooking meat, uh, you, you have to ensure that you cook it until the blood is gone. If you hunt a wild animal, then you are to pour out its blood and cover it with the soil. The clear thing that is clear here is that under no circumstances are you to eat or drink blood. The instruction to not eat blood, of course, goes back to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 to 4, where the Lord tells Noah that now, remember before chapter 9, man was only eating plants. But now, the Lord says in, in chapter 9 to Noah, you, you, may, you may now eat meat, but now I am saying to you, when you eat that meat, ensure to refrain from drinking its blood. And the reason that is given there is the same reason that is given here. The life is in the blood. The drinking of blood, of course, this idea that the life is in the blood is seen even in how pagans treat the blood. It is often seen that the drinking of blood, the taking a cup and pouring the blood of an animal and drinking it, is something that is seen in ancient pagan rituals, uh, some which survive even today across the world. There is an understanding that there is life is in the, the life of that animal is in the blood. So if one drinks the blood of a horse or any animal, they will receive that animal's strength. That's the belief. And so God prohibits his people from such a practice. Now, you might be sitting there and wondering, why is this a big deal? Why is the fact that the life is in the blood, why does that matter to the Lord? I mean, think about it. We kill the animal anyway, right? And when we kill the animal, what do we take away? It's life. So why is the Lord saying it's fine for us to eat meat and, and eat meat but, and kill animal and eat its meat, but he's just saying the, the life of the animal, which is in its blood, we mustn't drink. What's the point of that? Well, the main reason is given in our, te our text, that's Acts 17 and verse 11. Look at Acts 17 and verse 11, slowly. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make a... Sorry, did I say Acts? I meant Leviticus. Sorry. Sorry. Did I say Acts? Yeah, I meant... I'm hearing people page. I'm sorry. Acts is still in my mind here. For the, that's Leviticus 17, verse 11, here in our text. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The fact that the life is in the blood is important because only by a life can a life be bought. The people of God in Israel have to have these constant reminders that they need atonement. That is, they need their lives to be made acceptable before God. They need forgiveness. And so God gives them these animals by which they can be atoned for. So God does not want them to treat as common something which provides atonement for them. You are to hold this thing sacred, treated differently, because by this, I accept you. You remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, 
How is it that God continued to have dealings with them even after he kicked them out of the garden? How did he have, continue to have a relationship with them? You remember what he did? You remember what the Lord did? He killed an animal and he clothed them with, their, with its skin. Remember with Noah, when in Genesis 6, the Lord saw the, the heart of man, that man is continually evil, that man is despicable, and all he thinks about is just against God and all these things that are ugly. That's what fills man's mind. And then in Genesis 9, after God wipes the earth out and restarts again with this family, Noah's family, the Lord repeats it, that man is still exactly this way. So how is then God going to have any dealings with man? He tells him, you can eat meat, but don't drink its blood, because by that blood, I'll make atonement for you. You will have sacrifices. That is why we find in Genesis already, we find uh, Abraham and, and, um, and his sons sacrificing burnt offerings, because this was understood, that you kill an animal and the life is in the blood, and it's by that blood that we are atoned for. All of these instructions are showing a picture, a constant reminder to man that man needs atonement. The blood contains life, and that life, and by that life can a man stand in relation before God. Now this is even more important for us in the New Covenant when we understand that the life of an animal was never actually able to take away sin. We've seen that in Hebrews. The, lo- the blood of bulls and goats, the writer of Hebrews says, was never able to make perfect. So once again, Leviticus is keen to communicate to us the distance between man and God. And here particularly, Leviticus is keen to, to communicate to us the cost at which a man can have any dealings with God. What will it cost for God to not destroy you where you stand? A life. What will it cost for God to listen to your prayers? A life. What will it cost for you to draw near to your maker? A life. What will it cost for God to call you his child? A life. What will it cost for God to show you eternal kindness life. Why must it cost a life? Because you are a sinner. Because you are a sinner. It would be one thing if we said that you live a life of actively disobeying him. That's true. We do. We are worse. It's worse than that. We do. We do live a life that is actively disobeying the Lord. But it's much more than that. We live lives as though he is irrelevant. It's much worse than saying, you have said this, I'm not going to do it. Rather, we just treat him as though he doesn't matter. How many days have you disregarded your maker? How many days have you taken him lightly? And yet at the same time, every breath that you draw comes from him. Every mental capacity and faculty that you have that works comes from him. Anything that you've ever been able to achieve comes from Him. And yet you have the audacity to treat Him as though He is nothing, a speck of dust. That is why it will take a life. For you to have a relationship with God, for you to know God and for God to come near you, 
For you to cry out alone in your room, crying out to God and have him listen and promise to answer, someone must die. And that person was Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ is to be held sacred for us, by us. Because the blood of Christ, it is by the blood of Christ that we enter in to the Holy of Holies. It is by the blood of Christ that we enter in and have fellowship with the Lord. Without the blood of Christ, no man can have any kind of fellowship with God, no matter how much they think they are. See, people like saying that they're spiritual and they like saying that that they're close to spirituality of some kind. But unless the blood of Christ cleanses you from your filth, there's no fellowship to be had between you and God. And so for us, dear saints, the blood of Christ is to be set aside. It's to be held sacred by us. That's why we take communion so seriously. When we look back to what it took for us to enter in, Jesus says, this bread is like my body that is broken for you. It reminds you of his body. His body was actually broken. He was actually pierced on his side, not deserving it, having lived a perfect life. And yet he was treated like that so that we can live. His blood, he says, this cup is the, is the, blood, is a, is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. This cup reminds us that the blood actually flowed down from him. That the one who fashioned microbes, The one who thought of the universe became a man and then was spit on and pierced and died so that we could live. That is why we take communion seriously. We have to hold communion apart because it reminds us of the very thing by which our lives might be atoned for. Not even might be, are atoned for by. But the writer of Hebrews in thinking with us and trying to apply this principle of the blood and taking and holding sacred the blood, he goes further than what I have said. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, one could argue that it's the argument of the entirety of Hebrews chapter 10. But I'll start it here in verse 26. It says this in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But all that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the blood of the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Of the living God. Did you catch it? There was judgment in Israel for those who drank blood. We saw that. It said they must be cut off. 
They were removed from the people. They were killed. The blood which pictured their atonement, which was in future. The writer of Hebrews asks a pertinent question. What do you think is going to be done to the one who tramples underfoot the blood of Christ when Christ has come? How does one then trample underfoot the blood of Christ? Well, he said then, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately. If we go on sinning deliberately, we are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. You are worse than a person who drinks blood in a pagan ritual if you sin deliberately. See, the scripture says that disobedience is as witchcraft. If you sin deliberately, you are, you are not listening to what the Lord is saying in these matters with regards to your life. Last week we saw that you are only supposed to worship God alone. When you start worshiping other things and sinning deliberately, continuing to worship other things, you are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. What do you think will be, will be, will be done to you by the Lord? The blood of His precious Son. We saw last week that in terms of our sexual ethic, we must be upright. Not doing the things that God says are evil with regards to our sexuality. If you do that deliberately and continually, you are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. Treating it as though it was nothing. As though the death of Christ didn't mean anything. It is useless and so let's just go ahead and do whatever it is and live as though Christ's blood does not matter. And here he's warning the church after saying a number of even more practical things here. He says, uh, in in verse 25, he says, If we do not prioritize meeting together, those who do not prioritize meeting together, those are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. If it's not a priority for you to meet with the people of God and take seriously the word of the Lord and encouraging one another, you are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. In verse 24, he says, we must look, consider ways to spur one another to love and good works. So if you are living a life of not loving and not doing good works, you are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. You are continuing to sin deliberately. He goes on from verse 32 to talk about not persevering in the midst of trouble. So here are the saints, the Hebrews, who have received the gospel and they were, and they were joyous to receive the gospel and they were excited to receive it and live in light of it regardless of what was happening to them. But now they are slacking. Now they, do not, now they see the troubles that they are facing because of the gospel as being too insurmountable, being too big, and they are no longer persevering. And the, and the writer of Hebrews says... Where's the other sacrifice that will pay for that? Even in our suffering, we are not given a holiday from disobedience. You know this, church. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that now you can do whatever you want. But rather, suffering requires more obedience by you. And so, for us, as God's people, we need to constantly hold as sacred the blood of Christ that makes us clean. Hold it sacred in our hearts and in our minds. Constantly as we live and move and have our being, as we do the things that we normally do, constantly think, 
I have been purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb. A pure Lamb, a spotless Lamb, the Holy One of God. That's the first thing that we see in this community here, is that the need for atonement is to be held sacred by them. And so for us, our atonement that has been achieved by Christ is to be held sacred by us. Come with, in chapter 19, we see more of these aspects of a holy community. Now, there are various aspects of the holy community that God is designing among the Israelites that are specified here in chapter 19. Some of which we've already discussed in different ways. There's things regarding idolatry here that we've already discussed and touched on in different uh, times. This morning, I want to emphasize three broad categories that are here. And those three broad categories are these. Honoring authority, caring for the poor, and loving justice. Those are the three broad categories that are here. The other things that I'm leaving out, we've already touched on it already in the series. So look, at, look with me now in verse 3 of Leviticus 19. Verse 3. So the Lord, after the Lord says, you are to do what I tell you, because this is who I am, uh, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The very first thing that he says then is application to his holiness is this. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. It is quite something that God makes it clear throughout the scriptures from Genesis to the end that everyone is to honor their mother and father. It's quite something without qualification. You will not see any qualifications to this. It is your job if you have a mother and father, that is if you have authority above you, to honor that authority. The word used here in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word for fear, which is most frequently used regarding the fear of God. God is taking a word that is often telling the Israelites, revere me, revere me, fear me, love me. He says, Take, he says that attitude, I want you to have it with regards to your parents. What does this entail? It means that in the community where God dwells, the people of God Give their parents what is due to them. Respect. The people of God heed the word of their parents. They listen to them. The child, does not, the child that does not revere his mother or father is showing that something is terribly wrong with them. Showing that they are very far from the Lord. Because the Lord, like he does throughout this passage, he keeps saying, I am the Lord your God. This thing that I'm telling you to do says something about my character. And honoring, that is fearing mother and father, fearing authority, says something about what are you in comparison to God. If you fear mother and father and revere them, you are close to God. If you do not, you are showing a great chasm. You're closer to other gods than you are to the God of all eternity. God's people are not to be those who bring distress, exhaustion, and shame on the heads of their parents. 
A child that is a strain on their parents, that is a child that is not a blessing to their parents, is a child that the Lord does not honor. So children, pay close attention. Teenagers, children, pay very close attention. You must honor and revere your parents. And even when you graduate from being a child or a teenager in that sense, you still are to honor your parents and give them their place that they hold in your, in your life. They are your authority. And the word for revere here even has a connotation of thinking highly of. So when you revere something, think with me now. When you revere something, when you fear it, you, you exalt something, you think highly of it at, at the very least. You're thinking highly of this thing. Teenagers, do you think highly of your parents? Do you think highly of your parents? Do you prefer the opinions of your friends, the internet and others above the parents or the guardians or the authorities that God has given over you? If you do, I want you to know you are wrong and you need to repent. Change your mind. I'm not saying that your parents can never be wrong or unwise, but the word of God has little, if any, qualifications to this command. Revere your mother and father. It is your responsibility before the Lord. And this must not be tolerated among us, God's people. If we are to be a holy community, then we are to not tolerate children that belittle their parents. We are to not tolerate children and people that have attitudes and say things about their parents and make them as though they're nothing. Authority matters. And from this command comes all the other commands with regards to the government. In Romans 13, the scripture says, uses the same kind of logic. In fact, Paul, uh, Peter, uses this very same logic in chapter 2 of, of 1 Peter. Revere, take, take seriously the government, the authorities, all kinds of authorities that the Lord has put above you. If you do not do that, if you are belittling them, treating them as though they are nothing, as, as though they, they are just pieces of paper or just specks of dust, something is wrong with you. You are showing that you are far from the Lord. That's why Paul, even, even Paul, when Paul you know, spoke harshly to the ruler of his people, who was in the wrong, by the way, in Acts 30, he was in the wrong, But he spoke harshly to the ruler and then they told him, this is the high priest. How can you speak like that? And then he repented immediately. And then he said, because the Lord says, you are to not treat like nothing the ruler of your people. Something is wrong with you if you take authority as though it is nothing. Something is not right. You You are further away from God than you think you are. Repent, change your mind and walk in the straight way. And verse 32 puts this into perspective even more. Jump down to verse 32 and look at this. Regardless of whether or not you have a parent, look at what verse 32 says. You shall stand up before the gray head and you are to honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. If there is a gray head or if there's no more any hair, Stand up. Show respect. Show honor. Don't treat him as though he is just another one out of the bottle. Like Jose Mourinho says, this is a special one. If someone is older, he is to be 
honored among us. If there is a gray head among us, we ought to do whatever we can to stand aside and give them their place. Did you know, Christian, that how you treat older people that you meet wherever you are says much about you and God? It says much about you and God. It says much about what you think about God and His character. Show respect to the gray head. Here at Heritage, we are blessed with some older saints. I believe, and I've been convicted about this just even studying this this week, I believe it is our duty to serve them and honor them and show them the honor that befits the gray hairs or lack of hairs on their head. So let me challenge you younger, you younger adults, especially you younger adults in the church who have income. Let me challenge you. Dream and think of ways to show pointed and specific honor and hospitality to the aged among us. Dream of those ways and think of them and then show specific honor to those who are older among us. Let them feel in this place among us that they are honored. Let them feel that. It must be said among us that the older people feel honored and cherished and their place is taken care of, that they are revered among us. Let me challenge you to do that, to think of ways. Among the young people at the church, I am thankful that there are many friendships that are blooming and many hangouts being had. That's all very wonderful and long may it continue. But your sanctification is not complete if in your mind you do not consider how to honor the older among us. After all, the Lord Jesus says, what, is, what blessing is it to you if the only people that feel loved by you are your friends who are your age? If the only people that know your kindness are the people that are just like you, don't even the Gentiles do that. You need to go out of your way to show pointed and specific honor to the gray heads in the midst of us. I mean, challenge you young people to think about this. This is a command for you to honor the older here and wherever you are. Number two, we see, that's the first thing. We see that this community in chapter 19 is a community that honors authority and seniority. Number two, in chapter 19, we see that this is a hospitable community which cares for the poor. Look at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This is what is called the gleaning laws, where God called his people to set aside a part of their fields. So those who have land, they are to set aside a part of their fields for those who have no lands and have no means by which they can produce food for themselves. This is a very radical law. I challenge you to fit this in your economic theory. God here is claiming ownership over every Israelite's land. And he taxes them by law for the sake of the poor and the sojourners in Israel. From your harvest, that is from what you have, 
you must leave something for the pure, otherwise you don't take me seriously as the Lord your God. This is a serious law. As you challenge us, in our bank accounts, there must be something there for the poor and surgeoners among our land, the closer we are to God. How do you see, with regards to a man's land and his bank account, whether, how close he is to the Lord? Well, his land and his bank account is entirely just for him. It's just all about him and him stuffing his face. And if that's it, then we can see that you are a bit further from the Lord. It is an old covenant and a new covenant principle. It is more blessed to give than to receive. To receive. The people of God must know that generosity to those in the covenant community and the world around us shows much about the very nature of God. Isn't it the Lord Jesus who told us that the Lord brings His rain and sunshine to both righteous and unrighteous alike? But this principle also has, this law also has the principle of love of stranger, hospitality. See, God here says they are to not just take care of those who are in the covenant community, but also sojourners, travelers on the way. Look at verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. At the very least, you are to not do a stranger no wrong. But much more than that, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let me say this to us, saints. Hospitality must be a thing among us. We must be a hospitable people. Constantly using what we have to bless other people. Other people must know meals that come from your hand. Other people must know being fed when they were hungry because you were there. If that's not true of you, something is wrong. But much more than that, because you see, you could do this just with your friends, right? Oh no, I buy, you know, when we have hangouts, I'll buy chips and drinks. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the stranger. There are unique times, friends, where the Lord puts us as a church and you individually in contact with strangers who are in need. While I do believe it is necessary as a steward to be careful and not be scammed by all kinds of weirdos out there, I do believe that we must not allow the chances and the scammers to make us hardened such that we can see poverty and suffering in the world around us and we don't care. Don't let those who are evil make you hard like this. So that when you now see suffering and the Lord brings suffering into your purview that you don't care anymore. Paul says that we must do good to all, especially those in the household of God. Meaning, yes, we are to do good to those in the household of God. But we must also know that we are called to do good to all. So yes, church, be careful in Johannesburg. Do not be duped by the scammers. 
But I also want to challenge you, do not miss your Good Samaritan moment. Do not miss it because you're, you're so careful. The Lord will bring your, to you your Good Samaritan moments. That's why the Lord said, you should do the same. Do you remember when they asked him, How, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story. And then he said, after telling the story of the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. That's who your neighbor is, the stranger on the street. So don't miss those moments. Look out for moments to be generous to a stranger. And even if you are duped, if it happens that every now and again you are duped, so what? The Lord will return it to you tenfold in the kingdom of heaven. Why are you so, why do you care so much about pennies? About, why do you care so much about wealth that perishes? Store up for yourselves in a place where no moth and no, no thief can can, can destroy and mess up what it is that you have. We must be a people who are caring for others. And I'm also going to say this to the students and to the children in the church. I want you to listen to me. Do not categorize yourself as only the one, as one who only receives. See, the students among us and the children can have an attitude that is very wrong. I'm just one who receives. No, it's not a biblical thinking. It is more blessed to give than to receive. From what you have, show compassion and generosity. Finally, this is a community where justice is loved. A community where justice is loved. In verse 11, he says, do not steal. In verse 13... He, say, he talks of oppression. He says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. He also speaks of a just employment law. Look at that just employment law. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Okay, so if, you're, if you have an employee, give them what they have earned. Pay them the right wage at the time that you're supposed to pay them. There's also a concern here for, for a court system that is just. Look at verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So what are the two temptations when we're in court, when we're dealing with righteous things? People usually are partial to the one who seems weaker. The one who's the poorer, people are partial to them. That's why there's mob justice and, and especially social media to mob justice. We see something that looks like it's some kind of oppression and we jump on it without hearing out all the facts. We jump on things, just jumping on things because we just we make opinions without actually studying the case properly. So we, we tend to be partial to the poor people. But the scripture says don't be partial, do it properly. But also don't defer to the great. So if somebody's greater and bigger and they have a bigger name, don't now treat them better than the poor person. But do things in the right way, even in your lives. You know, don't just look at the nice, clean, middle-class people, middle-class person coming in and take care of his needs. And then the street kid that comes into the church, he's not cared for. We all just keep our distance from him. But the nice, clean, middle-class people, oh, we're there and caring for them. Don't do that. That is, unlike, that is unlike God. 
There is a law in verse 29 against human trafficking. Verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Don't make people, don't don't hurt people in this way and make them do evil things. And then, of course, in verse 35 and following, there is a concern for just weights. So when people are weighing the silver and gold, that they do it correctly and not steal and defraud their neighbors. You see, friends, justice is an attribute of God. What that means is that God does not do anything to rob, defraud, or cheat anyone. God, as it is, does not owe anyone anything. He is just. When God promises a reward, he gives it. When God enters into a covenant, he keeps it. When God enters into a commitment, he enters into it for the purpose of glorifying himself and blessing the one with whom he is engaging. Let us conduct ourselves in the same way, constantly thinking to bless those with whom we are engaging. God is just, and so God's people are to conduct themselves in a just fashion. Cutting corners, thieving, being dishonest in your taxes, all of these things are abominable because they are not from God. They come from somewhere else. As God's people, we must study our God in his word and act like him. By God's grace, we are no longer enslaved to the law, but by Christ we have been redeemed. However, as God's people, we are to seek perfection. We are to strive to be whole in all aspects. If I can say one thing to you, child of God, in closing, let me say this. Do not give in to the works of darkness. Do not give in to the works of darkness. Pursue the works of light. Pursue godliness. No matter how hard it is, do not give in. The works of darkness appear easy. There are many opportunities to steal. But let me say this to you. Continue fighting. Jesus sees and he will reward you. Christ says in Revelation that to the one who conquers, I'll grant that he eats from the tree of life. Conquer the darkness. The darkness is going to come for you in all of these different ways. You're going to be tempted to not honor authority. You're going to be tempted to not care for the vulnerable and the poor in society. You're going to be tempted to jump in with a mob and be partial to a poor person. Or, or you're going to be tempted to accept a bribe and honor a greater person over a poor person. These are temptations that are going to come to you. It's just going to be one thing on your taxes. Just change these numbers here and you get a massive tax rebate. Don't do it. Don't do it. The Lord and his character demands it so. And you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So now act like him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we read, on one hand we feel low because who here can say they have not broken these laws? On the one hand, when we read these things, Lord, we we see ourselves condemned. And our self-defenses come up. We want to defend ourselves. We want to 
try and show some way that we have not broken this, but the reality is that our conscience attacks us because we know we have. But on the other hand, Lord, we rejoice because because of the death of your Son, because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, we are treated as though we have kept this law perfectly. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are no longer treated as we deserve. And so, Lord, we praise you for these laws. And now coming to you, asking for grace to help us to walk in these ways. Five minutes after this service is over, we are going to be tempted to break this in some way. The only way that we will stand, if we do stand, is by your grace, through your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. Work in us, transform us, and bring us home. We will live in a wonderful, pure society where Christ is worshipped and there is no more sin and there's no more sin in us to fight against. Until then, give us the grace we need. Amen. So we, uh, we sang a song that we were supposed to sing at the end of the service, if you look at your bulletin there. So now we're going to sing the song that we were supposed to sing before the sermon, and that is a Christian's daily prayer. So won't you stand with me and let's sing together.